Hi, this is Anthony Esposito from the infamous Ace Freely Band. Hello, my name is Blaze Bailey. Hi, this is Bruce Kuhn. Hey, this is Chuck Billy from Testament right here on Mars Attack. Hey everyone, this is Dave Medicaid from YNT. This is Dave Starr from Wildstar. What's up, this is Doc Coyle from the band God Forbid. Alright, this is Jason from uh, Kings of Modesty. What's happening? This is Jeremy Goldberg from Age of Evil. Hey, what's up? This is Joey Z from Life of Agony. Hey, what's up? This is Mercedes from Kitty. I'm Rasmus Gruberg from New Keepers of the Water Towers. Hey, this is Tim Ripper Owen. Hey, this is Steven from I Wrestled a Bear Once. Hey, this is Tara. And this is Ivy. And we're half of Kitty. Hey, this is Wolf from the Chariot. This is Bobby Blitz from Overkill. You stay tuned. Hi, this is Robert Flashman. Hey, everybody. This is Bobby Rock. Hey, this is Zach from Nine Point. Hey, this is Frank from New Revolution. And you're listening to... Mars Attacks. Hey, this is Robbie Crane from Rat, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Go get them. Hey, what's up? This is Joe from Misery. Hey, this is John from Misery. Hey, this is Dale Lorenzo from Hades, nonfiction, the curse, and my horrible solo music. You listen to my boy Victor on Mars Attacks. G'day, this is Guy from Avalon, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, this is Ron Bumble for Fall of Guns N' Roses, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, this is Richard Patrick from Filter, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Uh, hey, what's up? This is Liam from Cancerbat, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, what's up? This is Jose from Bonnet by Blood, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Okay, this is Patrick from Heaven Below. You're listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, everybody, what's happening? This is John Bush, and you're cranking it up on Mars Attacks. How you doing? This is Frankie Benelli from Quiet Riot, letting you know that Victor Rock on Mars Attacks Radio. Welcome, one and all, to episode 16 of the Mars Attacks podcast. I am your host, Victor, and this week we have a very special interview with Frankie Benali, drummer extraordinaire from Quiet Riot. Uh, originally, we had um, Richard Patrick from Filter scheduled for this week's podcast, but Frankie's actually working on something uh, very special regarding Quiet Riot, and there's a deadline uh, that we're going to discuss during the interview, uh, so it was a now or never type situation. I apologize to anyone that was uh, looking forward to listening to that Richard Patrick interview that will appear next week. Uh, in any event, what we're going to discuss is a documentary that uh, Frankie's trying to put together regarding Quiet Riot. Uh, he's doing that in conjunction with Kickstarter.com. You'll hear all that information uh, throughout the interview. Uh, Quiet Riot is actually one of my all-time favorite bands. Um, I've been listening to the band since Metal Health came out. I was 10 at the time. Uh, was the first thing that I ever bought that was not Kiss. <laughs> Up until then, you know, I 24 hours listening to Kiss, or my brother at that time had Cheap Tricks Budokan. I remember uh, ACDC's uh, Back in Black, Ted Nugent's Scream Dream, uh, some Pat Benatar album, and Quiet Riot was the first band that really caught my eye and made me beg my parents to uh, go out and and get the cassette tape for me. I still have that cassette um, today, you know, and it's a group that I've followed throughout their career. The track playing in the background is a ritual. This came off of Alive and Well. It's one of my favorite tracks by the band. Every album that they've put out has had at least one or two uh, good songs on it. And I can actually say that aside from maybe one album, maybe possibly two albums, uh, I absolutely love the the rest. So considering the track record of other bands out there, I'll take that uh, any day of the week. Uh, so it was a great pleasure of mine to speak to Frankie and to do what I can to help make sure that this documentary takes place. In any event, what we're going to do is listen to the balance of The Ritual and jump right into the interview. We couldn't give it up So persist We couldn't get away One by one, when the day turns black, we will become 
Why have you decided to put this documentary together? Um, a couple of reasons. Um, when my friend Kevin DeBrow passed away uh, nearly three years ago, uh, there's just been a real void of anything quiet riot. Um, we were so used to constantly on the road and doing interviews and recording, and then all of a sudden when he, uh, when he died, um, it all ended for me. And uh, for the last 13 years, the last uh, the last portion, uh, the last half of the band, I also managed the band. But all along, I always kept the archive. You know, Kevin Kevin called me the business historian because I was always keeping every little bit of thing that uh, that had to do with Quiet Riot. Um, and I found myself going through the archives and um, finding that I had not just uh, thousands of pictures and and lyrics and master tapes and everything else that goes along with running the business of a band, but hundreds of hours of film footage, uh, things that go back as early as 1980 um, and as recently as 2007, the summer of 2007, uh, just a few months before Kevin passed away. Um, so I think it's, uh, for me, I think it's important to put uh, historical perspective on the history and the legacy of Quiet Riot, but the footage that I have is so there's such a broad stroke of material there. There's um, there's live shows at clubs, there's live shows at arenas, there's backstage footage, there's bus footage, um, hotel footage, everything imaginable in the recording studio, recording the second record condition critical and the third record QR three. Um, and it just goes on and on and on. There's a, there's a wealth of material that shows a lot of sides of the band and a lot of sides of the different individuals that were in Quiet Riot because there were quite a number of people that came in and out of Quiet Riot that I thought it would be a nice thing for the fans to get an inside view um, of the inner workings of the band. Okay, so all the material that you're going to be using is coming out of your archives, or did you solicit anything from outside sources? 99% uh, of, of everything uh, will probably be from my archives. There is so much material that I have that doesn't exist anywhere else um, that if, uh, if I need to you know, come up with some interview things like that that was shot elsewhere or some footage that was shot elsewhere, then I am not opposed to including it. Um, but right now, there's just so much material that it is mind-boggling. I mean, to give you just one example, when we did the video um, for the Wild and the Young off of the QR3 record, it was over a two-day period that we did that shoot. I have right. at least six hours of footage <laughs> from from a five-minute video. Right. So that should give you an indication, you know, just backstage, goofing around, you know, doing different takes. Uh, the, I mean, I find fascinating watching a video of somebody making a video of us uh, playing the song uh, up on the soundstage. So there's just so much material that, uh, that is actually, for me, it, it, it was actually even surprising. And I knew I had it, but there's one thing, knowing you have it and then cataloging everything and, um, and transferring it. To, uh, to more updated digital media because a, a lot of these tapes are, like I said, 20, 25, 30 years old. I was afraid that some of them were not going to play you know, from the beginning of the tape to the end. But fortunately, um, um, I'm almost completely done with the transferring, but some of the really key pieces and the oldest pieces have already been transferred and saved now. Okay, and that was actually my next point, was the state of the actual footage itself. So the majority of it was in good shape or was there anything that you actually had to do some type of say baking process or anything like that to actually get the footage to work again? No, the baking process is generally for audio tracks. Um, okay. So that really wasn't the issue. But the issue in this situation is that the media of the time was the VHS tape. Right. And the problem with those tapes is that they haven't kept, uh, they haven't been kept in the proper environment, uh, a lot of the things that could happen to them is they'll dry and break or they'll start running slow and dragging because um, the tape ends up sticking together or, or, um, or it becomes stuck. 
And right. but fortunately, I always kept all the uh, all the footage that I had in really really good environments, so I didn't have those issues. Now some of the things are, are from their times. You know, there's there's some footage that was shot at a club, and of course, you know, with the understanding that in a club, especially. 20, 30 years ago, the lighting wasn't always the greatest, the angles weren't always the greatest, but in that, there's, there's a lot of the charm of the situation, because you actually get an opportunity to go back in time and see it as it was when it was, so there's a lot of value in, in keeping some of the material in the, uh, in the way that it was actually recorded for, for its time. Gotcha, okay, and you had actually mentioned that just for that Wild in the Young video, you had six hours uh, worth of tape. Some of that actually appeared on the Bang Thy Head VHS, if I'm not mistaken. Um, no, actually, on, on the Bang on the Bang Thy Head, uh, there were no there were no bonus or extra features on the Bang Thy Head. Everything was strictly the videos that were out at that time. There wasn't a piece, or maybe I saw it somewhere else, where they actually showed someone shredding the guitars and things like that while you guys were filming the video and showing like an no, alternate. Actually, actually, that you would have seen. You would have seen possibly on VH1, and that material I supplied to VH1. Gotcha. So that is actually material from my from my archives from from that particular period. Okay, um, so on to my next question: How difficult was it? to decide with all the footage you had what to use and what not to use? Well, it's still a work in progress. Uh, I mean, I continue to, to catalog the material and, and make my notes, uh, but because there is so much material, storyboarding it is going to be very time-consuming and deciding you know, what to use and what not to use based on the chronology um, and, and the story, uh, the storyboarding of the documentary itself. Um, I can tell you that there's so much material that if I am successful in putting together this documentary and releasing it, um, there's very little doubt in my mind that at some point in the future, I would probably put together some sort of anthology, uh, a multi-disc uh, DVD anthology, because there's just so much material that at one point you have to say, okay, this works for the documentary, um, and uh, and this uh, is pertinent enough to to be able to use at some point in the future. But everything is dependent on whether the documentary gets made or not. Gotcha. Okay. Well, obviously, if the documentary isn't made, possibly an anthology like that wouldn't make sense to go out and and try to put together everything. I'm I'm assuming that everything is based upon how feasible it is for you to not only put the documentary together but put all the additional uh, extras together as well. Well, the reality of the, of the situation is that in the documentary above and beyond the footage <clears throat> that um that I have cataloged, um there's ongoing interviews with different individuals that were um involved with the band. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, during the band's history, you know, uh, musicians, managers, um, uh, road crew, that kind of situation. Um, but the reality of it is that I've already spent a good deal of my own money on on making the documentary, um, and obviously the the amount of the amount of time continues, and and that in itself is uh, is a major commitment. Um, but if uh, if I don't reach the funding that I need to finish it then I will more than likely not not continue to put money into it, and uh, it may just end up all being cataloged and, and properly um, converted to uh, digital media, which should be done anyway, and it may all end up going back in my archive safe, and you know maybe I'll have a party with 200 of my closest friends and show them all at my house, and then it never sees the light of the day. Gotcha. Okay. Well, you... It seems to me you're being very realistic and very cautious with everything as well. You don't want to sort of stick your neck out if, you know, in the end it's going to put you in a hole. Well, the, you know, the the way I, I view the situation, the reason I went with the Kickstarter.com idea for the funding of the project was not just because I had already spent uh, my own money, but I didn't want to, first of all, I didn't want to go out and get some corporate entities or a label or, or a uh, video DVD company or distributor um, to invest in it because as soon as you do that, then they start telling you what they want out of the documentary. And, and their main motivation 
um, is to make financial gain, which for me, my main motivation, even if I get the funding, the reality is that it will likely not recoup or ever see a profit. And I'm okay with that because it makes it possible to release it and it makes it possible for fans of Quiet Ride or people that are interested in Quiet Ride to see it. So I completely and totally avoid it going with the with the corporate backing because um, I'm, I'm not really good at having people tell me what to do um, creatively with something like this. The other side of it is that I wanted to see if the fans were interested enough and wanted it badly enough to, uh, to support it for me to make it. And that's the reason we did the Kickstarter.com because it makes it possible for the fans to be proactive about mm-hmm. it. They, they, they just don't say, I want it. They do something about it. And, and the Kickstarter.com system is great because when you go to Kickstarter.com, if you search my name or Quiet Riot, it'll come up with a picture icon. And when you hit that, it takes you to the actual um, project page. And that project page tells you an overview of it. It has some pictures on there. It has a, uh, a teaser clip of some of the material that would be in the documentary. Uh, and then it tells you how the funding works. And it's, it's very basic. I mean, you can back the project for as little as $10 or in increments going up um, all the way to, you know, some serious, uh, serious money. And, but you get something out of it, too. You don't just get because you're, you're uh, becoming a backer. You just don't get the, the satisfaction of helping the project. But there are packages that you get. So for, for the dollar amount that you back, you get a certain package directly from me, um, a memorabilia, a variety of things. And with each increment, you get the package before and then an added package. So it's, uh, it's a good system. The other um, fun aspect of it is that if you're a backer, almost daily um, I add uh, a minute, minute and a half, two-minute, three-minute clips onto the site. I've already added, I think, uh, 17 or 18 that only the backers have the opportunity to see. And uh, and some of that material, because I have so much material, some of that material may not even make it to the documentary. So the backers may very well be seeing stuff that uh, that they would not be able to see anywhere. So it's a fun project. And the financial aspect for the backers that I think they should know is that no money once once they go ahead and back and then they hit that green button and it takes them to the backing page. No money's actually transferred. All they do is is they fill out a form and they give uh, a credit card information. But the amount that they're backing is not held on their card or is not deducted from their card unless we meet uh, the minimum goal for, for the page. If it doesn't meet the minimum goal in the next, I think, 24 days, then no monies would have ever been uh, transferred out of their account. So there's, there's no risk there. Okay. Gotcha. And um, actually, it does give you a countdown right on the, the page as well. And it does give you a whole rundown, as you mentioned of the different um, things that a backer would receive if they pledge money. And how did you decide what was going to be offered to the backers? Because as you said, depending on the increments, it can be anything from uh, some autographed material to a uh, gold um, album certificate, if I'm not mistaken, uh, to dinner with you, drum lessons, or even having your name appear as a producer of the movie itself or the documentary, I'm sorry. How did you decide what you were going to offer uh, in return for backing? Well, I wanted, you know, there's, uh, there's a couple of things. When it comes to, to autograph items and, and things like, you know, um, uh, custom-made things like the, like the documentary badge or, or the commemorative backstage pass, things like that are, are fun items for fans. The, the autographed items, um, the interesting thing is these days is that there's less musicians actually willing to autograph anything, number one. Number two, with the economy and the state of the music industry, there are less and less bands going out compared to what it was maybe five, six years ago. Um, so there are less opportunities for fans to actually get something signed. So this meets one of those uh, criteria. But I also wanted to make things uh, possible that a normal fan couldn't get. While a fan can go out and get a fake uh, gold or platinum record, unless it has the RIAA certification hologram, it's not a real one. It's not like the ones that we get. So um, I can make it possible for a fan for the right funding to get a platinum Quiet Riot Mental Health Award 
with the RIAA-sanctioned uh, hologram, so it's real, and their name on it. That is something that uh, a fan or somebody that's, that's not in a position to do so, i.e. having the authority to do so, uh, can get. So that was, I think, uh, something special. The, the drum lesson I, I really like because, you know, how often can a fan uh, actually get a drum, uh, drum lesson or a music lesson from, from somebody that hopefully they, you know, they like or admire? And, right. uh, and in that package, uh, there's already been one, one person that, uh, that did that uh, for, I think it's their son. And it's going to be fun because I will hire a, a real, you know, professional rehearsal studio, and I'm going to bring in a couple of great vintage sets, possibly something that I used to record Quiet Riot. And, and there's going to be a fan that's going to be able to ask me how I played anything at all, and, and, I will, uh, and I will try to show them. But it'll be done on a real drum set, you know, something of historic value. Um, the, the Rainbow Bar and Grill is probably the most famous um, rock and roll hangout eatery in Los Angeles, possibly the world. Um, it's been there for at least 30, 35 years, and everybody from you know Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Quiet Riot, all the way through through bands that are popular um, now go there. So to take you know four people um, down to dinner with me, and I'm springing for the pizza, which is great at the Rainbow. It's pretty unique. I've never heard of anyone doing that. So I wanted to make it special. I wanted to make it personal. Gotcha. And if anyone does go out and bid, as you said, I mean, these are all unique opportunities, especially for the last two items that uh, that you mentioned. And and if someone goes as far as, you know, backing with some of the uh, higher categories there, you know, when is the last time that someone has had the opportunity to actually put their name in a documentary or a film that is made? So you're providing all of that to fans. And, and, you know, there's, there's, uh, and some of the higher packages incentives, you know, they'll actually get a prime seat at the premiere, uh, for the documentary. And, uh, I mean, I'm planning on submitting it, um, for the, for the Sundance, uh, Sundance, uh, festival, film festival. So if somebody got their name and production credit on something like that, it's major. That means that everybody in the world will see their name as, uh, as one of the producers of the documentary. So, and, you know, the thing is that right now, if if about I think maybe 200 or 280 people were to each bid um, uh, or back fifty dollars, we would meet that that uh, quota. That's really all it takes at this point. So we shall see. Cool, and hopefully uh, before September 3rd, we reach the uh, uh, yeah actually back. yeah actually it's September 2nd because it ends. So early in the morning on the third, I believe it ends at seven a.m. in the morning on the third. That you really have to look at it as the second, because if you wait until the third to bid, it will end before you bid. Okay, and if you're actually very close on the uh, second, would you contemplate extending it slightly to meet the uh, goal that you're looking for? No, the rules do not allow for that. The the Kickstarter.com rules are are basically. Uh, once you set the uh, once you set the timetable and and you launch the uh, the site, uh, it cannot be uh, it cannot be changed. The only thing you can do is remove it and start from square one, meaning that all bets are off. So once the uh, once the clock starts, it's do or die. You either you either get the funding or you don't. Gotcha. So fans of the band, go out and pledge as soon as you possibly can. If you want to see it, I'll be happy to uh, be happy to put the time, energy, uh, and money I already have in uh, in putting it out. But you know, you have to want it too. I mean, we we basically now live in a society, especially with the entertainment industry, where people are used to getting things for free. You know, something that you know bootlegged or they get it from a friend. Um, but in this situation, you know, I really want to make sure that it's special to to the fans. That it's not just something that they can just pick up just for for the sake of it. So we'll see. Okay. And um, real quickly, touching back on the material that you have, you'd mentioned that the band had uh, a bunch of different members throughout its history. Do you intend on possibly touching on all the members? Will there be a segment for, say, Paul Shortino or things like that? Or will it be kept uh, close to the classic metal health lineup? Well, no, I think it's important. I think it's important for people to understand that while as popular as the so-called metal health era lineup um, is or was, you know, there's so many other sides to to Quiet Riot. Like for instance, 
before it was it was you know considered the the classic lineup because of the record. Um, we had actually Kevin and I had actually gone into the studio and demoed uh, a number of the songs that ended up on the Metal Health record. Uh, but it was Chuck Wright on bass, and on some of those sessions it was uh, Bob Steffen on guitar. On some of the sessions there was a guitarist named Craig Turner. Uh, and when we actually went into the studio to record the Metal Health record, at uh, one point, even Carlos's brother, Tony Cavazzo, um, had come into the studio with us, although we didn't use, he was never a member of the band, uh, and we didn't use uh, um, uh, the tracks that we recorded with him. I think we might have recorded one track with him. Uh, the reality is that when we were recording the metal, what became the Metal Health record in 1982, um, that band uh, was Kevin Dubrow on vocals, myself on drums, uh, Chuck Wright on bass, and Carlos Cavazzo on guitar. And on the Metal Health record, a lot of people don't realize that on the track Metal Health Bang Your Head and Don't Want to Let You Go is, uh, is Chuck Wright on bass. And, and he's credited as such on the record, but a lot of people don't realize that. It wasn't until um, the late great Randy Rose died that um, Rudy came back into the band. So even at the beginning, it really wasn't, you know, the so-called classic lineup that became the classic lineup with the success of the Metal Health record, um, which recorded only the first and second record at that point, um, Metal Health and Condition Critical. Then at that, after Condition Critical and that tour, Rudy left the band and Chuck was back in the band. So then it was uh, Kevin, myself, Carlos, and Chuck. Um, and we did the QR3 record. On the fourth Quiet Ride record, it was only myself and Carlos Cabal, so um, that record included Paul Shortino and Sean McNabb on bass. Um, and then when the band got back together again uh, and we recorded the Terrified record, that was Kevin, myself, Carlos, and a bass player named Kenny Hillary. Uh, Chuck returned again on the Down to the Bone record, and then the so-called classic lineup reunited again uh, around 1997 when we recorded the Alive and Well CD and then Guilty Pleasures then that band itself uh, disintegrated again, that version of the band. And uh, the touring band then became Kevin, myself, Chuck Wright, and uh, new guitarist Alex Grassi. But when we did the the last studio Quiet Ride record in 2006, Rehab, um, that was Kevin, myself, uh, Tony Franklin and on uh, bass, and Neil Citron on guitar, both, uh, both very excellent musicians and close friends of mine. Uh, but they didn't tour because when we went out on tour in 2006 and 2007, it was the most stable lineup of Kevin, myself, Chuck Redd, and Alex Grassi. So it's, uh, as you can see, there's a lot of, there's a lot of players involved. It wasn't just the four people that, uh, that most people associate with Quiet Riot because of the success of the mental health record. Right. And actually, you touched on a, a bunch of great albums there. I honestly feel that albums like Guilty Pleasure and um, Terrified are great albums. Um, Terrified, did you actually play the entire album through? There are some tracks that are credited to Bobby Rondinelli. Did he actually end up on the album, or is it all you're playing on the album? No, no, he's, he's, on, he's on some of the tracks. How that came about is uh, at, one, at one point, um, Kevin was working with uh, Carlos, Kenny, and Bobby. Um, and they had done they had done some dates together and started the record, but Bobby uh, um, left the band uh, right in the middle of uh, of touring and recording, and that's when Kevin called me up and asked me if I would be interested in rejoining the band, which I actually uh, told him that I would finish the dates for them to get them out of that mess, and that I would um, record the uh, the rest of the record, but I really wasn't sure whether I wanted to to come back into into the situation uh but after he asked me about three times i i couldn't you know we were <laughs> friends i couldn't i couldn't resist it so i came back in but yes bobby rondelli does does appear on uh, on some of the tracks on the terrified record but because his involvement in the band was so peripheral um he was never considered a member of the band nor um is there any any footage or anything that includes him in the band gotcha okay um, there have been rumors for years that the Metal Health lineup was put together again for some type of a party that Marilyn Manson was putting together. Is that true, or is that just BS that's out there on the web? No, what happened, there, there's, there's truth to it. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of misinformation. What happened is the, the band at the time was together. Um, 
Uh, the band at the time included, uh, obviously, Kevin, myself, Carlos, and Chuck Wright on bass. And I got a, uh, a phone call from Marilyn Manson's manager because Marilyn uh, was going to headline a show at the uh, Santa Monica Civic Center out here in California and was going to throw this private party. And uh, he's a fan of 80s metal rock and a fan of Quiet Riot, um, at least at the time. And he requested that Quiet Riot play at the um, at his party. And uh, and the manager uh, got in touch with me, and we negotiated the deal. Um, and what happened is, you know, Rudy and I had uh, had continued our friendship um, over time. And I and I said, listen, Rudy, you know, we're going to be playing uh, we're going to be playing in town for this party for um, for Marilyn Manson. You know, would you and your wife be interested in coming down? I'll be happy to put you on the list. And uh, and he said, yeah, that would that would be fantastic. That would be great. And I said, you know, half jokingly, I said, you know, maybe you can come up and play a couple of songs. And he said, I'd love to. And that's exactly what happened. We uh, we did our set, and we always say, uh, come on, feel the noise, and bang your head in particular is the last two songs of the set. And we invited Rudy to uh, to come up and play. Um, and at that time, Chuck was making plans to do something else. So after we finished playing, we're waiting at the valet to get our cars, and, uh, and Rudy says, you know, we should talk tomorrow. And I said, yeah, great. And I gave him a call, and that's what rekindled um, having Rudy come back into the band. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and you just mentioned there how other people have been uh, interested in the band outside of, you know, obvious members that were in the band, like Marilyn Manson onwards. Um, Quiet Riot has transcended a bunch of, you know, different eras and different um, types of entertainment. You guys have appeared in video games. You guys have appeared in a bunch of different movies as well. At least the music has. Um, how have those situations come about? Have those been things that you guys have actively pursued or have those situations all come to you guys um, when someone has been interested to put them in, say, a movie or a, a game of some sort? For the most part, um, like I said, uh, almost all of uh, all of those um, things that have happened have happened since I've managed the band, with the exception of the inclusion of uh, of the song "Mental Health" on the Footloose soundtrack. That happened, you know, that was of its time. But everything else um, happened after I started managing the band. Uh, but a lot of it is just that Quiet Riot has become this sort of, you know, iconic. Um, piece of history from from that time in music and that genre so in a way you know we've become part of the soundtrack of that particular generation so the interest uh has been there either from corporate entities or the fans um themselves making it possible for different situations to you know raise an eyebrow and say well this is something we need to uh we need to secure um, so a lot of it, you know, the ESPN commercial, uh, you know, that came to me. Some of the stuff comes through my agent. Uh, it, they solicit my agent. My agent gets in touch with me, and then we negotiate the deal. But, um, it, you know, it pretty much has happened a lot on its own because of the strength of the uh, of the mental health record in particular and the fact that the band continued in, in one way, one shape or form um, for, you know, a quarter of a century. Okay. And speaking of that, do you think it was um, very helpful for Metal Health to be the first album to come to come out? So obviously you guys did have a foundation where you could lay the rest of your uh, career on, or do you feel that it actually made things harder, added more pressure to the band to actually have to try and, uh, you know, at least in some people's eyes, live up to the success that that album had? Well, a couple of fascinating um, things about it to me is, number one, by the time we went into into the studio to record the Metal Health record, uh, Kevin and I, in particular, had played those songs, or a lot of those songs, live for about two years with uh, an almost constant revolving door of musicians that were coming in and out of the band. So the nucleus at that point was really just Kevin and myself and the songs. By the time we went in to record the Metal Health record, you know, we knew those songs inside out. And yes, of course, you fine-tune them when you're in a recording situation, but we knew what we wanted. We made it very easy for the producer. Um, so that was one aspect. Uh, an outside aspect was the fact that we did um, the track Come On, Feel the Noise, and that became such a huge hit. The 
and I don't I don't want to state it a problem because how can you say that when you know uh, at the time your record sells four, five, six million units uh, to date is over ten million worldwide? How can you say that that's a problem? It isn't, but the reality of the situation is that something like that is a rare occurrence. Uh, it was unheard of in 1983 and 1984, but even today, that is unheard of for, for especially a hard rock or metal band to do. So what happens is we have this incredibly huge hit, and, and then anything you do after that, unless it does the same, which is impossible to do for nearly anyone, Right. Um, then, then it's considered it's considered a failure, uh, and I always find fascinating that the second record, Condition Critical, um, sold over two million units. Nobody does that today. Yet it has been maligned as what a disappointment and what a failure that record is. Uh, I'll tell you what: if I can release records every year that only sell over <laughs> two million units, I would be the happiest disappointed guy on the planet. <laughs> you it's been a an un, it's been a well it's been an unfair criticism to say you know there was a failure because they're they're measuring it uh based on the success of the mental health record i think what would be more fair is that they would measure the sales of that record against the sales of other records of the genre of the same time and then you can tell me if that was a failure or not but you know of course nobody ever does that right right and, that, and that's a fair assessment that's almost like if a sports team, for whatever reason, goes undefeated, if they lose one game the next year, you know, oh, it's been a failure because they lost that one game. You know, it just doesn't make oh, sense. And everybody's guilty of that. I'm a huge New York Yankees fan, and, and when they're winning, I love them. And when, and when they're not winning, I say, what a bunch of bums. Only kidding, A-Rod. Only kidding, A-Rod. <laughs> I don't want A-Rod knocking on my door with a bat, you know what I mean? <laughs> You're from the West Coast, though. How'd you end up being a Yankees fan? I'm from New York. <laughs> You're from New York. Okay, my bad. Yeah. Yeah, I live in California. My father was from Sicily. My mother was from Spain, but I live in New York. Oh, or, ra- or rather, I live in California, but I was uh, I was born and raised in New York City. Gotcha. Okay. Well, both of my folks are from Spain, and I was born in New Jersey and moved over here a few years back. So, um, yeah, so we're in the same neighborhood, you know, just just, uh, just separated by a lot of land and uh, and a bit of ocean. Yeah, There. there you go. One of the last things that I'm going to ask you, as far as the mask is concerned, the mask has become such an iconic figure, not only for the band, but metal and music in general. Did you ever think that when you first saw the mask, that it would be such an image, such an iconic image so many years later? Well, yes and no. Uh, The reason for the mask is, you know, we wanted something to represent the band, uh, some kind of iconic kind of image. Um, to represent them, so it was uh, it was you know thought out in in that way. We wanted something that everybody could always associate with the band, regardless of uh, regardless of what was going on or what was not going on with the band. So from from that aspect, I'm uh, to be honest with you, I'm really not surprised. Gotcha. Okay. And um, how different is life for you now without the band? Well, it's it's been it's been really um, the first thing you have to understand is that um, I knew Kevin uh, for 28 years with him for the better part of 27 years, and um, and you know we were we were really close. I mean, to the point that we were more than brothers, uh, and and when we were friends, we were as tight as could be, and when we were you know. Uh, at, at odds uh, with each other, it was it was as bad as it was good. Uh, but our friendship always came back to square one. And on any given day, you know, Kevin would call me, and no exaggeration, twenty to forty times a day. I mean, to talk about anything, everything, nothing. Um, and and on the road, the one thing you'll find about the documentary is that while most musicians, understandably, do not like to hang out with each other, you know, when they're not playing together on the road because they're always, you know, either on stage together, traveling together. The difference is with, with Kevin and me is we always hung out together. I mean, as soon as we check into a hotel, you know, uh, depending on the time of day, we go out to lunch together or we go out to dinner together or we go to a movie or we go to the mall, whatever. Um, and, and a lot of that was captured on video. I had two terms for, um, for Kevin and I. Uh, we were either called the Kamikaze Twins when we were being really bad 
or <laughs> it was the it was the Kevin and show when uh, when it was comedy and and comedy was almost as important to Kevin and me as it was music. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, one day, all of that was gone. My friend was gone. The comedy was gone. Um, uh, the companionship was gone. And and then the the other side effect was was that you know all of a sudden my business was gone. Um, so it was uh, it, it was about a year that I actually didn't even pick up a pair of drumsticks. wasn't thinking about music or or anything. I mean, for a solid year it was mourning. And um, so that was difficult. The realization that uh, that you know for all intents and purposes at that point in time, Quiet Riot was gone from my life was uh, was you know very difficult to accept. Um, the interesting thing when I started uh, putting the documentary project together and I started going through the footage is that the the broadness of the emotions um, have been amazing. I mean, I've I've done everything from crying to to the point that I was on the floor just hysterically laughing at some of these things to to looking and saying, ah, what what a great band this was at, at various times in our history to seriously crying because the only way I can actually see or hear my friend um, is to see him on, on, you know, bits of film um, that span almost 30 years. What I hadn't counted on was how much I actually physically missed the band, meaning I, I missed being on stage and playing those songs. And that was something I, I wasn't expected or uh, expecting or, or was prepared for. So that, that was uh that was a byproduct that I really did not anticipate. I knew that I was going to have all the other emotions, but I didn't. I didn't know I was going to miss, you know, Quiet Riot, you know, the, the live uh, feeling of playing Quiet Riot and playing those songs as much as I do. But you know, again, I did it uh, consistently for a quarter of a century. I'm the only member in Quiet Riot that played on every single um, Quiet Riot record from 1983's Metal Health through 2006's uh, Rehab. I'm the only one that can say that. Right, right, because obviously Kevin wasn't on the album that Paul saw. On the fourth, correct. Yeah. Correct, yeah. So I'm the only one that's played on every single Quiet Ride record. I mean, to me, I'm very, very proud of that, to be able to say that you're the only one that has done something, you know, like that, that spans, you know, 30 years. Gotcha. You were the foundation there for all those years. Well, I'm the one that always, you know, for, for better or for worse, um, and especially after after Kevin and I found Common Ground, um, when when he was out of the band for a while, um, I was always the, the one that had Kevin's back. I was always the one that you know tried to be supportive, even when it was incredibly difficult. And uh, and you know he depended on me and he counted on me, and I never let him down. Gotcha. Okay. And how disrespectful do you think it is that the Grammys actually didn't mention Kevin's passing uh, during their award show? It was. It was. It really, it really hurt my feelings, but it hurt my feelings more than anything because, you know, I can only imagine um, how Kevin's mom felt about that. And I'm very close to Kevin's mom, always have been. We, we talk on the phone all the time, uh, emails, Christmas cards, you know, holiday cards, birthday cards, all of that, because we've always been close. And, and I'm even closer now that Kevin is gone. Uh, but it, it, it hurt me because I think that it was disrespectful for Kevin. He earned it. He should have been, he should have been mentioned. And it hurt me because I can only imagine how it must have hurt his mother. So, yeah, it was wrong. At the same time, Quiet Riot has been, you know, in one way or another disrespected o- over the years, you know, starting with the so-called um, failure of, of a two million selling, you know, follow-up record. That you have to say to yourself, this is just this is just one one more uh, one more disrespect, and and you basically say, all right, well they were foolish uh, not to include them, and you move on. How you doing? This is Frankie Benelli from Quiet Riot, letting you know that Victor Rock on Mars Attack Radio.
title track off of the Down to the Bone album. Down to the Bone. Absolutely love that song as well. Again, so many songs by this band that I absolutely love, and it's very difficult for me just to pick, you know, a few to include in the podcast. Usually it's somewhere in the neighborhood of four to five songs that are used for the podcast, and it's one of those bands it's really, really difficult just to, you know, figure out what I want to uh, bring to the table with the episode. You know, I could have gone the easy route, could have done Metal Health, could have done, you know, Come On, Feel the Noise, Slick Black Cadillac, uh, Party All Night, um, Wild and the Young, things like that. Um, you know, but diehard fans, well, actually a diehard fan is going to know all the tracks that I'm playing here. Um, but... You know, the the people that are somewhat, uh, you know, on the fence, whether they want to get involved with this documentary or not, um, whether they want to find out more about Quiet Riot uh, or Frankie's playing in general, may not know these songs. So I'm just trying to bring something else to the table, and uh, I'll be the first one to admit that my tastes are um, odd in a lot of circles because I love all of these obscure tracks and things that you wouldn't normally here on the radio you know this is a band that i grew up listening to and they're so much more than just you know the songs that you typically hear played um by them so uh, and i think you know throughout the various formations uh of the band always a very underrated band i think carlos always brought some great soloing to the table I think he's actually brought a lot to the table with that new Rat album, helping them, you know, sort of turn the clock back and really give fans what um, uh, what they wanted uh, from a band like that. You know, unfortunately, I think so many bands get caught up uh, in what's taking place at the current time, and it's, you know, it's noble to try new things, um, but... Some bands just go too far, in my opinion. They try to experiment too much and alienate too many fans. Um, don't get me wrong. I love bands that, you know, stretch their boundaries, uh, try different things. But, you know, just putting out something that's just completely pop-oriented uh, or just ballad-laced because you're hoping to, you know, uh, jump on, you know, whatever's going on currently, just, you know, I don't know, you're diehard fans, um, you turn a a great bit away, I think, but uh, anyway, that's just me, what do I know, but uh, (laughs) anyway, um, behind us, you'll hear Shadow of Love, song off of another great album called uh, Guilty Pleasures, Um, like I always say, support the bands you love, in this case, you know, Frankie's looking to collect the 20 grand by um, the 2nd of September. If you're listening to this interview right now, you'll find the link to go over to um, kickstarter.com and the, um, the portion that uh, relates to the, um, the documentary itself. Excuse me. You can click on it straight from the Mars Attacks Radio website. Go over there and, you know, do your part. Even if it's 10 bucks, if it's 50, if it's 100, if you got 10 grand to uh, to spare. You know, I know things are tight in this economy, but you could be the executive producer of, uh, of this documentary. In any event, go to the website, check out all the cool uh, different things that uh, you would get in return for um, pledging. Towards the movie, uh, I really hope that the movie does get made. Um, I did become a backer, um, or at least by the time this episode comes out, I will have become a backer. And um, you know, it's me as a music historian and me as a fan of the band. Obviously, you know, I'd love to see this uh, done. Um, I've also exchanged uh, emails with Frankie to do a little Q&A that's going to go up on Metal Army America, hopefully within the next few days. We'll keep you posted on that. Keep checking back to um, MarsAttacksRadio.com. And uh, for those of you that are maybe checking out my podcast for the first time, we do have Mars Attacks Radio, which is on Thursday nights on MarkStriegelRadio.com. You click on Stream A. 
Um, and again, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on Thursdays. Repeat times are listed right there within the uh, Mars Attacks Radio website. Excuse me. <laughs> and um, from there, you could also link over to the Twitter, the Facebook account, the um, MySpace as well. Sign up for all that good stuff. Uh, you know, I usually uh, update stuff during the week regarding what bands are coming on next uh, or who I've spoken to. So if you're a fan of different types of interviews, uh, you know, you can check that stuff out there uh, as well. As I mentioned, Richard Patrick, if everything goes as planned, will be the next interview. But uh, in the coming weeks, you'll have people like Chuck Billy from Testament, Bobby Blitz from Overkill, John Bush, uh, formerly from Anthrax, currently from Armored Saint, um, and we'll touch on a bunch of different interviews that I did uh, strictly for Mark Spiegel Radio before coming out with the podcast. Uh, also, if you want to uh, leave me your comments, everything is welcome, good, bad, and indifferent. Uh, you can send those to uh, Victor at MarsAttacksRadio.com. And uh, again, we take your um comment into consideration and do what we can to try to improve and bring you the uh, type of stuff that you're looking for. In any event, um, we have behind us right now, this is the track, Run For Cover, coming off of Metal Health. Another great track. Let's play a little of that before coming back and, and signing off. a badass track there, Run For Cover, Frankie doing some double bass work. Again, a track off of Metal Health isn't as popular as maybe Come On Feel The Noise or Metal Health. Just as great of a track in my opinion. Um, speaking to Frankly, actually, you know, um, sort of got my mind going for this week's Mars Attacks Radio episode where I pretty much focused on groups that all came out of California, um, roughly around the same time or after Quiet Riot uh, made it big, you know, obviously they were the first hard rock or metal act in the States to have a number one album, so they opened so many doors for groups at that time, and, um, you know, it's a shame that certain groups that I played, for example, Motley Crue or Rat or groups like that, you know, maybe eclipse them in popularity, but in my opinion anyway, um, music-wise, or their musicianship was on par, maybe even better than some of these other bands. Unfortunately, 
you know, some of these other bands, some of the bands that I mentioned, didn't become popular solely because of their music, where although the guys in Quiet Riot are maybe more solid players, you know, there were controversies with, uh, or rumors with Kevin, but, you know, obviously there wasn't the antics that, um, or as far as I know anyway, that maybe Motley Cruz the Dirt had, or things of that nature. In any event, I do appreciate Frankie coming on the show, uh, Chip from Chipster PR setting everything up, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to have Frankie again on the show in the future. We'll keep you posted on that. As usual, check back um, on the website, marsattacksradio.com. Also check out the Talking Metal Wire, where I'm a frequent contributor where you'll find all types of information regarding what I'm doing as well. Uh, Also, Metal Army America. And, again, check out the Twitter, the Facebook, and the MySpace account. Uh, What we're going to be leaving you with is Terrified, coming off of the album Terrified. Again, another underrated album. We touched upon it quickly during the uh, episode. Absolutely love this song as well. Love all the songs that I played throughout this episode. So hope you enjoyed them as well. Again, go out and support the bands you love. Pick up anything by Quiet Riot if you were interested in anything that I played. And go over to kickstarter.com and um, become a backer of the documentary. Let's get this movie made. So let me leave you with a little bit of Terrified. And we'll see you next time right here on Mars Attacks. Mars Attacks.